With Euros in London, New York, Jerusalem, and Cal Copper Copper, this is Shire Network News for the week ending Sunday, July 24, 2005. Hi, I'm your host, Tom Payne. Welcome to the 10th edition of Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric blog, SilentRunning.tv. We call it Shire Network News because I'm a New Zealander, and New Zealand tends to drop off the map a bit, and it's where Peter Jackson filmed Lord of the Rings, and it's pretty Shire-like anyway. But small and out of the way though it is, New Zealand's always pulled its weight internationally. Pay no attention to the current government. There's going to be an election soon, probably around the middle of September, and on current performance, Helen Clark is going to have plenty of time to work on her CV and apply for Kofi Annan's job after that. Right now we're looking at a US warship visit, nuclear power plants and the Kiwi SAS haloing into Waziristan to cap Osama, all within 48 hours of National Party leader Don Brash becoming Prime Minister, with Axe Rodney Hyde as deputy, of course. Well, coming up in today's show, we'll have a report from our man in London, Andrew Ian Dodge, on the somewhat less than spectacular follow-up attacks this week. Then an interview with Ted Lapkin of the Australian-Israel Jewish Affairs Council who helped to uncover some Islamic hate literature which was being sold quite openly here in Australia. He's in no doubt as to what ought to be done about it. I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly a layman. But from my layman's view, when I look at the definition of, of, of sedition and treachery slash treason in the Commonwealth Crimes Act, it seems to, it seems to me that it might fit the bill because uh, the, the, the Commonwealth Crimes Act talks about levying war or preparing to levy war against the Commonwealth and the Constitution of the Commonwealth. And at the end of the show, we'll hear from that rarest of creatures, a right-wing Jewish editor of a university student newspaper. We had a feature article that advocated um, New Zealand introducing nuclear power. I'm working on a story right now about how affirmative action policies at Vic have failed I mean, we really are moving away from the stereotypical student mentality. That's Emily Braunstein, editor of Salient, a magazine published by the Victoria University of Wellington Students Association. We'll also have the regular full of crap report from Lawrence Simon, the man who forgot to patent the concept of cat blogging and thereby missed out on several million dollars in royalties. This week, the crap is being flung around by our old friends, the Palestinians. But first, here's the latest from what's now the sharp end of the war, London. Good afternoon. This is Andrew Ian Dodge reporting from a sunny, if rather tense, London. As you probably have heard and may have read on my blog, London was subjected to another series of attacks by, obviously we're being fair to them, suspected Islamic terrorists. They hit four areas, one bus and three tubes. Unfortunately for them, and fortunately for the rest of us, the detonators went off and the rest of the bombs didn't. It's believed this happened because whomever mixed up the explosives got the recipe wrong. People on the bus reported having white powder sprayed on them after when they heard the bang. Now, needless to say, considering this is a fortnight after the last attacks, people are relatively annoyed. And the reactions from my friends and contacts was not one of oh my god and scared it was more one of anger those bastards are at it again type stuff before you're wondering I've checked with all my uh, contacts and, and loved ones and bandmates and they're doing fine however there are a few people in London right now who are looking rather stupid now Ken Livingston ever the politician did a wonderful stand 
with two policemen discussing it today, but I'm guessing he might have rather regretted his recent statements, uh, which were returned to form, as far as he's concerned, regarding Islamist and Islamo-fascist. Rather interesting that Al-Qaradawi cancelled his trip to London, and then we had these. Hmm, interesting timing. Needless to say, let me go over what we know so far. There were four attacks. One on a bus in Hackney, oddly enough, coincidentally enough, in Galloway's constituency, which of course led to lefties already saying that it was, it has a whiff of the far right about it because it happened to go off in Bethnal Green. One of the bombs didn't go off, the one on the bus, and, well, it actually, the detonator went off and it went poof, and the driver, brave man if there ever was, and went upstairs to check, and he found a bomb that hadn't gone off. At one time, there were reports, and it caused a lockdown at the UCL hospital because there was a gentleman running around of Asian appearance, shocking until that is, with wire sticking out of a backpack. And there was an arrest uh, right out front of Downing Street where someone seemed to have tried to sneak in. No one knows about that. Uh, Michael Howard and, I mean, rather, sorry, wrong Howard. It's confusing when, when the leader of the opposition and the leader of Australia have the same name. Your Howard, the Australian Howard, and Blair were scheduled to have a press conference, which they indeed, in fact, had. But they discussed terrorism rather than the other issues which the two uh, men were going to discuss. Bizarre thing, of course, is because it's London, the attitude of some people is very matter-of-fact. Where last time I went out into Pimlico and all I was greeted with were a bunch of gormless Americans walking around going, duh, what do I do now? This time I went out to the supermarket and there were virtually no changes. It was Pimlico at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It was just no difference. People were going about their business. And the, the quick recovery this time is, is, is rather fascinating. It will be interesting to see what the fallout truly is, as I reported with after the last incident on 7-7, many of our moderate Muslim friends uh, spent much of their time making excuses, blaming everybody but Islamic, bringing up Jews, Iraq, Bush, Blair, anybody they could think of. It was only a very few who actually said, gee, I think we have a problem in our communities. I think the British public is going to demand that there's a lot less talk and a lot more action. As a politician said to me at the Globalization Institute launch, if they don't do something about it, we're going to have to. I think the Islamic community of the UK has a very big problem. They really need to do something about this evil in their midst, or things are going to get rather ugly, I suspect. As you can imagine, I didn't envision doing this sort of report on a Thursday, both for uh, Shire News Network and WLOB Maine, which is actually a Fox affiliate, I found out, which is rather amusing. Instead, I was hoping to be um, doing interviews and uh, preparing to mail out more copies of our single, Whiskey in Westminster. Unfortunately, I think Whiskey in Westminster, as far as getting any attention from the people that are being sent to, is scuppered. I think these terrorist attacks are going to quite rightly overshadow anything and any possible traction we get with a single. Anyway, I rather hope that I don't come to you in two weeks reporting on the same thing. This has been Andrine Dodge, andrinedodge.com, disgracefulmusic.com, and libertycadre.net from London. Stay aware and stay safe. Thanks for that, Andrew. And the latest news is that the Metropolitan Police actually managed to track down what we believe to be one of the suicide bombers and shot him in the Warren Street tube station. Pumped 
five rounds into him, apparently. And when you're dealing with the suicide bomber, that strikes me as being minimum force. Naturally, it only took the Muslim Council of Great Britain about an hour before they were demanding to know if there was some sort of shoot-to-kill policy. I believe the answer is yes, closely followed by why do you ask? Here in the Commonwealth of Australia, there was quite a stir this week when literature advocating jihad, terrorism, suicide bombing and the necessity of fighting non-Muslims was uncovered on sale in Muslim bookstores, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. Police are apparently not sure if they can do anything about it yet, although no one in authority seems to want to allow such books to continue to be sold. I spoke to Ted Lapkin of the Australian-Israel Jewish Affairs Council, who originally raised the issue by the simple expedient of going into the bookstore here in Melbourne and buying copies of the material. Well, it started when I was informed by uh, one of my sources, who (laughs) shall remain anonymous, uh, that... uh, Radical jihadist material was being sold out of a, a mosque, a bookstore that was adjacent to a mosque that's affiliated with Sheikh Omran. And so uh, I went down there. Um, this was in early June uh, with one of my colleagues from AJAC, and uh, we spent about $120 and uh, bought up a series of pamphlets, books, and videos that uh, uh, explicitly preached uh, that it was a religious requirement of Islam to wage holy war against the infidels, that it was forbidden to make friends with non-Muslims, Jews and Christians in particular, and uh, articulated generally a pretty paranoid and extremist view of uh, the world and of non-Muslims. What kind of a reaction did you get when you were buying all these books? I take it you don't look like the normal customers they get. No, I went in in my suit and tie, and uh, the guy who sold them to me, whose name uh, was uh, Ridwan, uh, was, I think, a little taken aback, but I guess he figured that uh, my money was as good as anybody else's, and uh, he allowed us to consummate the purchase, and uh, here you have the material in front of you. What's the response been like? You've gone public with this, and it's uh, made a fairly big splash in the Australian media. Well, I think that uh, in general terms, it has been recognized that uh, there has been a radical Islamic presence in Sydney, particularly the Lakemba Mosque. I I don't think that that was real news, but the fact that you had uh, similar material being sold here in Melbourne, I think, was seen as somewhat more newsworthy because it hadn't been... uh, Uh, generally recognized to the extent that it had been in in Sydney. There hadn't been as much media coverage of uh, radical, the phenomenon of radical Islam in Melbourne as opposed to Sydney. What kind of a response have you had, pro and anti? Well, um, other than Sheikh Omran, who who, uh, is affiliated to this uh, this mosque and bookstore, I I, I haven't heard too many people coming out in favor of this material. Uh, most of the people uh, to whom we've shown it have been appalled because it's it is uh, it is extremist material. Uh, I was quoted in the in the Age as uh, saying it wouldn't be out of place in one of Osama bin Laden's videos, and it's absolutely true. Do we have any evidence that this kind of material is actually affecting Muslims who are reading it? Well. <sighs> Uh, I think all we have to do is uh, look at what's going on in Britain where you had, uh, uh, I mean today, you had the second round of, uh, of uh, bombings in the uh, 
London transport system. Fortunately, this time, due to the incompetence of the bomb makers, the uh, main charges didn't take and only the detonators went off. But I think that uh, one of the uh, 7-7 bombers, the, the bombers from the horrendous attack on July 7th, was affiliated with a similar bookshop book in Leeds and uh, had been, and some of the bombers had been known to frequent uh, this bookshop that was selling similarly radical jihadist material. I saw there was one woman from the uh, Muslim community who was standing outside the bookstore basically defending its right to, to sell the stuff, saying that in Australia we have freedom of speech and, uh, and, and, and who are we to sort of say that Muslims aren't allowed to say what they think about their own faith? Well, um, in response to that, I'll quote uh, a uh, s- former Supreme Court Justice from the United States by the name of Robert Jackson, and he said that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are not a suicide pact. And I think that Jackson would know because he was the uh, chief uh, prosecutor in the Nuremberg war crimes trials. And uh, the fundamental fact is this is not a normal time. We are uh, engaged in a war, a war that was foisted upon us, that was declared against us by a global jihadist movement, uh, whether it's Lashkar Toiba in Pakistan, whether it's Al-Qaeda, whether it's Jamai Islamiyah, whether it's any of the offshoots uh, that are affiliated with this general jihadist uh, uh, movement. And these are people who want to turn the world into uh, the equivalent of uh, Afghanistan under the Taliban. And uh, I think that that, com- that that outcome is repugnant to uh, free peoples everywhere, to the foundational freedoms that we take for granted as, as, as uh, uh, citizens living in a democracy. And in that kind of circumstance, uh, on a wartime footing, then sometimes you may have to take measures that are somewhat more restrictive and harder edge than you would normally when you're not under threat and you're in time of peace. What do you think should be done about this situation then? We've uh, um, brought this material to the attention of the uh, the authorities, and I think that that in light of London, I I don't think we can be blasé about this kind of material after London, and I think that the authorities should look very, very closely to see whether this violates uh, any of... uh, uh, the clauses of uh, the Crimes Act. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly a layman. But from my layman's view, when I look at the definition of, of, of sedition and treachery slash treason in the Commonwealth Crimes Act, it seems to uh, it seems to me that it might fit the bill because uh, the, the the Commonwealth Crimes Act talks about levying war or preparing to levy war against the Commonwealth and the Constitution of the Commonwealth. I'm not a lawyer, I'm a layman, but uh, based on my layman's reading of the Commonwealth Crimes Act, uh, uh, treachery is defined as levying war or doing any act preparatory to levying war against the Commonwealth. And uh, the material that I purchased up in Brunswick explicitly calls for the waging of jihad against uh, the non-Muslim world. Uh, It it talks about uh, uh, using tanks and artillery and aircraft and other forms of modern military violence to impose terror on the kuffar, which is an Arabic word for non-believers. And uh, I would hope that the authorities would look very closely uh, as to whether this c- sort of material violates the uh, the uh, prohibitions against treachery and s- even sedition in the Commonwealth Criminal Code. What about the argument that by taking this kind of action against um, extremism, you're actually 
fueling the extremism. I even feel stupid asking the question. Well, again, uh, the, I, I think that uh, uh, we have seen that the wages of appeasement are not peace, but more terrorism and more war and more bloodshed. And the proper way to react to this kind of uh, war, holy war that has been declared against us, is to uh, is to uh, respond militarily uh, in terms of law enforcement and on an intelligence basis, aggressively to kill, capture, and otherwise neutralize uh, these uh, people who want to, uh, wh- whose values are straight from the seventh century, and want to turn Australia and the rest of the world into, uh, like I said before, Afghanistan under the Taliban. That's not the way that uh, the left in Australia sees it. They don't see that it's a war at all. It's a law enforcement problem. Well, uh, I, I, I've written on this, and I, actually, I just had a piece in the Financial Review, the Australian Financial Review, earlier uh, this week on precisely this issue, and let me just. Uh, give you a quick anecdote that I think illustrates the problem uh, in involved in looking at this as a criminal justice issue as opposed to a national defense issue. Um, a couple of weeks after the 9-11 attacks, there was a front page above the fold story in the Washington Post that related how Bill Clinton in 1996 had been offered a uh, Osama bin Laden's basically his head on a platter. The Sudanese, uh, bin Laden was living in the Sudan at the time. The Sudanese government wanted to get off the U.S. State Department's uh, terrorism list. Uh, there was a lot of intelligence clearly linking Osama bin Laden to the 1993 World Trade Center truck bombing. And so the Sudanese offered the Clinton administration a deal. We will give you Osama bin Laden in return for getting off the U.S. State Department's terrorist list. Um, the... <laughs> Clinton administration declined the offer because Janet Reno, uh, Bill Clinton's uh, attorney general, came to the conclusion that she didn't have uh, enough admissible evidence to convict Osama bin Laden in a court of law, despite the fact that he was clearly linked on the basis of intelligence data to the 1993 uh, World Trade Center bombing. Now, what would have happened? How would the world today be different if Bill Clinton had... uh, addressed the issue of al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden as a national security issue instead of a criminal justice issue. How would the world be different today if he had sent in a team of Navy SEALs instead of uh, uh, consulted a team of Justice Department lawyers? Well, I mean, one thing immediately comes to mind, and that is two skyscrapers in lower Manhattan that I think would still be standing today. Do you think that what happened in London could happen here in Australia? Uh, I hope not. But uh, I don't think that we can be complacent. I don't think we can be sanguine. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to get into Australia. I think we have very, very good border protection in that regard. But once you're here, if you're talking about cells, sleeper cells that are inside Australia, I think that it would not be difficult to launch that kind of attack. And I just hope that the authorities and ASIO and the AFP and state law enforcement are on the ball and they're keeping... Uh, tabs on this. That was Ted Lapkin of the Australian-Israel Jewish Affairs Council. You're listening to Shire Network News, the podcast of the Anglospheric blog, silentrunning.tv. I'm your host, Tom Payne. Coming up, an interview with a right-wing Jewish editor of a university student magazine. Yes, I know, I can hardly believe it myself. Right now, though, here's the Full of Crap report. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Simon. You're probably wondering who's full of crap this week. Well, wonder no longer, it's my favoritest people in the whole world. 
This week, a 12-year-old Palestinian got stabbed to death in a brawl. Who did it? Why, bloodthirsty, knife-waving, crazed Zionist settlers, of course. Hamza Juhar told Ynet, We were flying kites when all of a sudden we saw four settlers from afar. Getting closer to us, we started to run. But as we did, I saw one settler, a tall man with a large body, stab Yazan in the neck. Hamza said he could identify the killer. He was already questioned by Palestinian police officers. The boy's uncle, Abu Mayud, told Ynet that this was not the first time that settlers have attacked villagers and their property. Two years ago, an 18-year-old was murdered after chasing his runaway sheep. The settlers continually come by foot or by horse and beat up residents, damage their homes and the village as well, Mayud said. <sighs> oh, stuff it, Hamza. You're so full of crap. Your eyes are brown. Who really stabbed him? Here's a hint. Which death cult non-culture promotes honor killings, blood libels, and revenge as social norms? Here's the real story, courtesy of Jerusalem Post. Palestinian sources say they have arrested a suspect on Thursday in the stabbing of a 12-year-old Palestinian boy Wednesday night in the West Bank village of Karyut. The sources confirm that the suspect was a member of a rival clan, Israel reported. Earlier, Palestinian sources had reported that the boy was killed in a brawl that had erupted between Palestinian youths and Israeli settlers who had entered the village from the nearby settlement of Shiloh. However, Palestinian officials soon admitted to IDF officers that the incident was related to an inter-clan dispute. If you know when the first and second stories hit the wire, you now know how long it takes for the truth to tie its shoes. Most real journalists would look at this story and countless other stories as proof that it's impossible to trust the Palestinians as sources of breaking news beyond the fact that something happened. Sadly, there's few real journalists in the area. The people who claim to be journalists in Gaza or the West Bank are mostly local Arab stringers, all of which are members of the old Arafat's propagandist union, which were ordered once again not to report on stories that would have had a detrimental impact on global opinion of Palestinians and their struggle to destroy Israel. Oops, I'm sorry, national aspirations. Which means, for all intents and purposes, not reporting the truth. Lie for Palestine, boys! Speaking of which, let's take a look at another cache of uh, diaper rash and God shorts. Ramsey Baroud of Al Jazeera.net. From a recent piece in that Saudi piece of crap, the Arab News, I quote, Is it possible that we have not learned a single thing since the massacres of September 11th, Janine, Kandahar, and Fallujah? Such erroneous logic will persist with pundits like Gerard Baker of the Times blaming 14th century Islamic fanaticism for the London bombings while strongly rebuffing any linkage between group and state terrorism. Uh, Ramsey, how many people were massacred at Janine? A uh, hundred? Five hundred? What did Shia bureaucrats say? Uh, thousands? Uh, all those numbers have been proven to be lies. But if you trot them out time and time again, when every Palestinian man or teenager killed in that operation were armed and engaged in combat against the IDF, well, maybe some stupid people will believe it. <sighs> like, say, Kofi Annan, who tried to send in a bunch of investigators who were all pro-Palestinian activists and NGOs. Gee whiz, really. The only people ruthlessly slaughtered were the IDF troops who were led into booby-trapped house by a child luring them into the trap. You know, I've heard even rumors that the child told the squad that there was a wounded civilian in the house as a lure, but that's just a rumor. By Ramsey's and Reuters' standard, however, wild rumors are good enough to base a story on. Live for Palestine, boys, because it's full of crap. And you can hear Lawrence Simon on other podcasts. Pretty much all of them, in fact, he's a hard man to miss these days. 
There's his own offerings at fullofcrap.com and the Is Really Cool podcast, which is done by Dave in Israel. And not forgetting the IMAO podcast, which has pretty much left the rest of us eating Frank J's dust. For our last offering this week, we go to New Zealand, land of my birth, islands of my people, and the place where I acquired this accent, which I am reliably assured by several American women is, and I quote, cute. More years ago than I care to remember, I went to university in Wellington, where I fell in with a bad crowd, Jews mostly, and a series of events was set in motion that led to me becoming a student politician. It's okay, I eventually got into a 12-step program, um, Hi, my name's Tom Payne, um, and I used to be a student politician. It's been 15 years since I last had the urge to pass a motion expressing solidarity with the struggle of the people and students of Upper Volta. As a member of the Coalition of Moderates, a group set up to oppose the Maoists and the Trotskyites, who decided it would be a wizard wheeze to attack the Jewish students, apparently we were responsible for invading Lebanon or something, I spent two years clinging to power and bashing Marxists upside the head. It was kind of fun. Through all this, the student weekly magazine Salient kept up a barrage of abuse against Zionist elements who were pursuing outside agendas at the behest of powerful external forces. I'm pleased to report that today the counter-revolution has officially won. Salient's editor this year is Emily Braunstein, a fan of classical liberalism and a Jew. Only six more signs of the apocalypse left to go. I asked Emily about her approach to editing a student magazine, and in particular why Salient now has two political columns, one called From the Left and the other, incredible as it may sound, is called From the Right. Young people in New Zealand now are more centrist than they've ever been. I mean, even today's left doesn't really bear a huge amount of resemblance, I think, to the left of 20 or 30 years ago among New Zealand youth. There's no really strong... Maoist presence on campus. There's no really strong anarchist presence. Um, the left tends to be categorised now by a sort of return to the welfare state, ardently feminist, relativist ideology. And the right today, uh, I mean, again, the conservative right is almost dead among youth. The right today is about the ideals of classical liberalism, you know, they've all read The Fountainhead and a lot of them are voting acts and both of those kinds of ideologies are really strongly present on campus. But I think, if anything, what the politics on at a campus like university is, um, like Victoria University is really characterised by is absolute apathy. Very few people actually give a damn. Well, in that case, nothing's changed since my day. <laughs> well... What we're trying to do is, from the left, from the right, is to canvas different points of view, different ways of reacting to things that are happening in New Zealand or around the world, just to try to encourage people to actually take some kind of stand um, and to introduce people to the kinds of argumentation that surround these issues. Because we think that it's important for young people to engage in issues of the day, especially in an election year, especially when there are people who really are going to be leading the country. And yet in my day, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been unthinkable to have a column called From the Right. There were, the argument was between various brands of uh, the left. What's changed? I don't know if I can tell you what's changed. I think it's become cooler to be right-wing. Uh, cooler is a horrible word, but I don't think it's much more socially acceptable to be right-wing now. I think also that 
I mean, this is a magazine and a lot of it has to do with editorial direction. When I started at Vic, the editor was a very, very militantly left-wing woman who whose vision for the magazine was to make it a voice of that extreme left um, and who many people felt was really unrepresentative to the point where a rival magazine started up. In the face of that, that's actually where I got my start. In well, in that respect, things haven't changed since my day. Insofar as the rival publications. Well, people getting pissed off with uh, extremists running things. Right. Well, I mean, I think people will always get pissed off at the way that student media is run. That's the nature of the beast. But I really, this year, I really didn't want Salient 2005 to be branded as one particular partisan wing. You know, I didn't want people to say that was the right wing year or that was the left wing year. I really wanted people to feel like we were trying to particularly because it's an election year in New Zealand, that we were really trying to give a you know broad range of opinion. What's motivating students politically these days? What kind of political action are the ones that are interested in politics getting into, never mind the apathetic majority? They'll always be with us, won't they? Well, absolutely. I think on the whole, fees, tertiary fees, is probably the single biggest motivating factor behind student political action. Uh, Self-interest, there's no stopping it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And in in some ways it's fair and in some ways it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, and, and, you know, and so the left-wing argument runs that tertiary education is a public good and the right-wing argument among young people, classical liberalism being the new black these days, will say, you know, that that you choose to take on tertiary education, so it's up to you to fund that. And, Where's um, this interest in classical liberalism coming from? What's driving it, do you think? I think a lot of it is because these are people who were born in the mid-1980s. You know, these are people who were born in the post-Muldoon era, who've grown up, I and mean, when you're looking at, at the university demographic, people who've grown up very comfortably um, who don't remember New Zealand as a welfare state, and so for whom that whole idea is unrealistic and perhaps even a bit archaic. Um, and I think people who've really been raised with the mentality that if you want something, you know, you go out and get it, um, which makes them dubious about the idea of reliance on the state for anything, and that in turn becomes a sort of ideology that says that... Um, that that it's wrong for people who are getting out there and doing it and, you know, have their number eight, or I will travel to support through their taxes the lifestyles of people who, you know, in in this kind of rhetoric are basically too lazy to go out there and do it for themselves. Is there the usual political divide between the art students on one hand being slightly more left-wing and the uh, commerce and science students being more conservative? I don't know about science students. They don't really tend to figure enormously on the political radar. I think the divide between art students and law students in very generalistic terms is probably the key one. Um, art students are seen as being the you know the neo hippies um, in law and and to some extent as well commerce students are seen as being the you know the conservatives the ones who are going to take on the business world one day one of the things that is really noticeable on our campus is that most students who are politically active tend to be social liberals even those on the right even those on the right absolutely because they're you know they're libertarians 
Well, that rather undercuts the left-wing perspective of anyone on the right as some sort of dull, buttoned-up, you know, would-be, you know, member of the Chamber of Commerce. That's not the perspective, I, I think, uh, that students on the left have of students on the right. The perspective that students on the left have of students on the right is that students on the right don't care about poor people. They don't care about the fact that people live in economic circumstances that aren't of their own making, um, that they're not prepared to, you know, basically get in there and help out their fellow Kiwis, and that they're selfish and greedy, really. And that's just another stereotype, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. When did being right-wing become cool? How the hell did that <laughs> I wish I knew, actually. I really wish I knew. It's sort of something that snuck in over the last few years. I, I don't want to sort of paint this as all right-wingers now uh, of the classical liberal ilk. There certainly is a conservative movement. But it certainly seems that there's, there's more balance since my day. I mean, you've gone back and, and read some of the salience from the time that I was around, yeah. 1981 to 83, uh, and you'll have seen just how completely one-sided the whole thing was. Things seem to have become much more balanced. I think that the reportage has become much more balanced. Um, I also think that the student student politics has become more balanced, although the left still think that the that the student association executive is too right and the right think that it's too left. In fact, this year's executive on the whole is reasonably centrist. Well, I like to think I and my friends played a role in that back in 1981 when we formed the Coalition of Moderates and turfed the left out. I think you probably did. I think there might be, there might be a salient article in this. Where did the new right come from? We'll sort of trawl back and try to figure it out. I can pretend to be the little Richard of, uh, of student politics. I was doing this before any of you even thought of it. What a legacy. I mean, but that's right about the time when, when a lot of these people were being born, you know, or a little before even. So really, I think, I think part of the reason why being right-wing has become certainly more acceptable and more common and probably, you know, cooler, uh, maybe I shouldn't have used that word at all, but certainly more, more socially acceptable is just because... It's it's a more reasonable way of reacting to the way that these people were raised. All I can say is that as someone who went through the upheavals of the early 1980s, the idea of having a right-wing Jewish editor of just blows my mind. I was at your bat mitzvah, young lady, so you were. I know you're Jewish. Yes, everyone knows I'm Jewish. It's not easy to hide when your last name is Bronstein. And when your writers like to make little ironic jabs about it in their articles. Are you the only right-wing editor of a student newspaper, or is it, uh, this a general phenomenon in New Zealand universities? Um, I would, first of all, I'm loath to really characterise myself as right-wing insofar as I'm the editor of Salient, simply because I don't want... I, I, I really ardently do not want Salient to be known as a right-wing magazine, and I don't think it is. But I think the answer to your question is that student media on the whole in New Zealand is becoming more interested in representing more viewpoints. I don't think that there is I don't think that there's any student media in New Zealand right now that it's really as heatedly left wing as it was even when I was at Vic when I started at Vic six years ago and certainly as it was, you know, twenty, twenty five years ago. What do you think your big achievements as editor have been on, on behalf of Salient so far this year? I've come in to Salient actually under under a fair amount of pressure. We've been named New Zealand's best student magazine twice in a row at the annual student media awards, um, and it's a very scary point at which to come into the job. But I think if there's 
if there's a, a single thing that I'm really proud of, it's that we are actually taking on issues by the balls, if I can say that. Um, you can say anything. This is a podcast. We're practically <laughs> cable. You could say shit if you liked. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> um, you know that, that we really are trying to get trying to get our foot into investigative journalism and really explore issues instead of just sort of dealing with them the way that we're supposed to deal with them. I mean, we've written stories. You know, we had a we had a feature article that advocated um, New Zealand introducing nuclear power. I'm working on a story right now about how affirmative action policies at Vic have failed. I mean, we really are moving away from the stereotypical student mentality, or we're moving away from the typical point of view that people express student media that people expect student media to express. And I think that that's something to be really proud of. Pro nuclear power, anti affirmative action. I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I just said I didn't want to call myself right wing, didn't I? But <laughs> too late. I, I feel terrific. The revolution has succeeded. I used to come here when it was all just fields, you know, and look what you've done with it. Well done. Well, I think the interesting thing now, though, will be to come back in 10 or 15 years and see if the pendulum's just swung in the other way. Swings and roundabouts. It always happens. It's yeah. self-correcting. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an interesting time, though, for student politics and student media right now. It's a fun time to be doing this. That was Emily Braunstein, editor of Salient the weekly student magazine of the Victoria University of Wellington Students Association in New Zealand. Well, that's it for Shine Network News for this week. I'm your host, Tom Payne. Keep reading silentrunning.tv. And until next week, may your God go with you.